This is The Guardian. I'm Grace Dent and this is Comfort Eating from The Guardian. A podcast where we pay homage to the lesser celebrated foods in life. Because even as a restaurant critic, I believe the food that matters most is often that snack you cobble together when you're curled up on the sofa. Each week, I ask my guest to lift the lid on what comfort foods have seen them through their lives. Because you can tell a lot about a person from what they eat behind closed doors. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, friends. Guess what? I am not for once in my kitchen. We're recording this inside the Guardian. I know Inside Guardian Towers, the snack that I've got today is something that my producer got for me. It is the most Guardian snack. Some fair trade mango slices. They're dried, by the way, just to dry all the fun out of them. So worthy. Today, I'm speaking with a bona fide polymath. Baroness Tani Gray Thompson is not only one of Britain's greatest ever Paralympians, yes, just the 11 gold medals, she's also an independent peer in the House of Lords. Now, all of this is enough to make me a little bit intimidated, but I have it on good authority that Tani is not your average Baroness. I'm looking forward to finding out what that means. I reckon this is going to be a fun one. Oh. <laughs> It's not got any better, does it? No. Baroness Tani Gray Thompson, <laughs> welcome to Comfort Eating. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. I've got severe Baroness envy <laughs> at the moment. I don't think you use that title very much in real life, do you? No, well, it, it all seems a bit kind of flaky to go, I'm Baroness Grey Thompson. Uh, and my family would never forgive me. Um, my husband would probably say something rude. So, and I've never found it kind of gets me anything. So, oh, you, well, maybe I have, probably haven't tried it. So, you're a dame as well, aren't you? Yeah, these things, both. Yeah. These things are wasted on you. Like, honestly, like, why? <laughs> I will teach you. you. We will go to a restaurant and I would just stand at the main desk and just go, Table for two for Baroness Grace Dent. Is that not? Do you not do that? No, no, I don't. Maybe I need a bit more practice at it. Yeah. Okay. Envy aside, this is the point where you reveal 
the snack, the thing that you eat behind closed doors. I have absolutely no idea what's going to be on the plate today. Reveal your snack. So this goes back to about 1976 in the summer holidays, watching Why Don't You? Oh, my gosh. Why don't you turn off the television and go do something less boring instead? Yes. Anyway, and they had this as something to make in the summer holidays. I went to the kitchen. We had the ingredients, made it, and this is... I love it. It is crumpets with cheese and tomatoes and a bit of mixed herbs, and it's meant to be a pizza replacement. Um, I'm just... (laughs) (laughs) It's northern pizza. It's... it's it's maybe not looking quite the way it's meant to look for anyone listening who has the beauty of youth and doesn't remember why don't you it was a television show that was on in the summer holidays that kind of it was like crafts wasn't it (laughs) arts and crafts and then like real children came and presented it and it was just so the epitome of glamour i thought was was to be and this and this was an arts and crafts Home cooking special. This is what has it got a special? I can't stop laughing. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, apologies if you expected something more glamorous with the Baroness title. (laughs) This is this is just what I thought a Baroness is, (laughs) right? But so you you can do it really posh, you know, you could do it with like really sort of posh cheeses, you know, you can put something else on instead of mix it. I've tried it with brie with truffles, which is not quite the same yeah. as a bit of cheddar. Yeah, but what you haven't done any of those posh things here, have you? What, <laughs> no. <laughs> what you've done is there's a crumpet, which is um, a common and garden crumpet, and then you've got one of those American kind of flat cheesy slices that comes in a <laughs> comes in a plastic thing. But there's also tomato. Hang on, should we both have a bit? So, yeah. Oh, hang on. Is that mixed? Is that just kind of M- bouquet? Mixed herbs. Mixed, yeah. mixed herbs. <laughs> You haven't even gone for a singular herb, have you? Oh, I do like that. I mean, mm. it's kind of buttery and greasy. It's um, so greasy. Mm. It's so spongy. You then have to go and do, like, five hours training to make up for the fact that you've had a couple of these. What? I didn't bring a napkin. Do you think if, <laughs> if I did, like, the 800 metres really quickly around the round the block, would that work one of those off? Um Probably about 4K. (laughs) (laughs) So I've got to have to have another bite. But Uh, when you get the cheese all bubbly and I'm mm. not I'm not a great cook. So, you know, sorry, which is why I think this is one of my favourite. Oh, Mm. thank you. You've got napkins. Mm, Yeah. Oh, I was going to wipe my fingers on my trousers, but that's not good. With that and, and a nice cup of tea. Yeah. It just kind of hits the spot. You grew up in Cardiff Mm -hmm. with your parents and your sister. What was life like at home? It was good. Um, My mum trained as a baker and a confectioner. So uh, everything we had, you know, my my dad had a good job. So, you know, which was amazing. He was an architect and food was a big part of our life. Actually, growing up, everything mum cooked was from scratch. Um, you know, she she was an amazing cook. All our birthday cakes were kind of stunning. Oh. And me and my sister were, like, really ungrateful and we just wanted a cake from the local supermarket. Um, <laughs> and I, yeah. I, I do remember the first time my husband came home to meet the family and mum had sort of done afternoon tea. 
and she had all these different kind of cakes and things that she made and sponge cake and Welsh cakes and and she'd apologised that she hadn't had time to make jam tarts so I'd been to the supermarket and bought a packet of jam tarts and my sister and I both went she bought jam tarts (laughs) (laughs) and uh and Ian just looked at me, and I think he might have called me an ungrateful cow in front of my parents. So he went straight up in my mum's estimation. But, but actually, food, food, food was a really important part of our life growing up. Um, my parents are really sporty, you know, so, you know, they encouraged me into sport and physical activity. So it was, it was pretty good. We were very lucky. And your mum was a baker. So were meal times always kind of quite beautiful and not just birthday parties and things like that was was the food that was being put on the table what was it ornate yeah um so my dad worked quite long hours so we used to come home from school and would have sort of cake and a cup of tea and you know something like that and then we'd probably eat even when I was quite young we'd be eating about eight eight maybe 8.30 at night it was quite late actually okay for for children I think but that's kind of what we did, so I didn't really know any difference. But yeah, no. Um, so my dad had quite sort of set food. So he didn't think pasta was real food. You know, that's not a proper meal. Yeah, it, it was. It was quite funny what was kind of real food and what was a snack food. Okay. Uh, yeah. So did he class pasta as an just kind of an amuse bouche, or what was it? <laughs> that, just a, that was kind of an emergency meal. An emergency meal. Yeah, which. You know, then becoming an athlete where I had to eat a lot of stuff like that, probably struggled with it a a little bit. But yeah, mum used to kind of bake, so she'd make, um, you know, like pies and hot pots, just quite a lot of comforty type food, actually. But because we lived in Cardiff, you know, with the the docks and, you know, we'd eat whelks and mussels, sweetbreads. Well, I I, I didn't know what sweetbreads were until I was about 15. And then a tripe, a tripe and milk. Oh, and milk. And the one thing I really hate is lava bread. We used to be given lava bread as a kid with bacon. And it just, it's slimy and it's green and it's just horrible. So you were born with spina bifida. Mm. You've been in a wheelchair since you were seven. Mm. You've said in the past, oh, that you don't remember a lot about that time. What have others told you about life then? Um, I, I vaguely remember walking, but I could never walk very well. Mm. And because um, I'm missing some bones at the back of my vertebra, mm. as I grew, my spine collapsed, so mm. my own vertebra severed my spinal cord. Nobody really told me what was going to... I suppose they didn't know what was going to mm. happen. Yeah. Um, I think by the time I was paralysed and I had my first chair... I think actually that made my life so much easier because it gave me freedom to do things. Mm -hmm. So I could go off and play with my friends. And when I was still able to walk a little bit, I think that's when I got really frustrated because I could walk a couple of feet and then my legs would collapse from underneath me and I'd fall over. And I was the kid in school that constantly had plasters on their knees, you know. And and the kids in school were brilliant because they just picked me up, you know, back on my feet. Yes. and and they were amazing, but uh, for me, the chair was a massive turning point because it gave me that freedom that mm. I didn't have before. Yeah. But my parents told me later that lots of people love to tell them that by letting me have a wheelchair, you know, they would destroy my life and I'd never have a job and never mm. have a career and never get married and this whole list of nevers. But they, they protected me from a lot of that. So yeah. my mum was great. She was really feisty. And if someone was patronising to me... She she just didn't tolerate it. And she'd always say, it's them, not you. You know, they're idiots. 
you know, just, just ignore them. Across Britain, there are school houses named in your honour. But I understand that education for you wasn't such a simple journey. Yeah. Your father had to really fight to get you into mainstream school, didn't he? Because I could walk when I started school, I'd gone to our local primary. So when I was due to go to high school, I thought I was going to go to the same school that my sister was at. And then we had a letter from the head teacher which said, Dear Mr. and Mrs. Gray, we don't take people like Tanya at our school. I remember uh, my mum being fuming. Yeah. So my dad used um, Mary Warnock, Baroness Warnock's work on education for disabled children. And there were a couple of lines in her green paper which said that I had the right to be educated in the best environment for me. And then my yeah. dad threatened to sue the Secretary of State for Wales. So it takes quite a lot of nerve to do that. And, you know, but he was educated and he knew how to how to do it how to do it and you know we you know his letters which we we see kept and we found sort of when he died was you know they were quite strong i mean he just mm. he didn't give up he didn't because the difference between going to mainstream school and special ed was just worlds apart you know in special ed i'd have been able to do um cse's in re english lit home economics and maybe art mm. whereas in school i did Ten O levels, so you know, it was already decided at eleven that my life path was going to be very different. What was school like when you got there? Did you love it? I did love school. I did. I mean, it wasn't near where I lived, mm. so I missed out on the social side. But I think even at that age, my parents had explained to me that the most important bit was to get a good education. So I kind of understood it. So it would have been much nicer to be able to go to school. You know, I, I remember. It's not a big thing now, you know. Wednesday night used to be the Scout Disco, mm. so I, I didn't get to do things like that. Yeah. But if I hadn't have gone to that school, I don't think I would have had the career. In, but I certainly wouldn't have had the career in politics that I have. So yeah. you know, it's it's sort of swings and roundabouts, really. So you go off to this school and you start doing athletics. Mm. <laughs> How quickly does that become an obsession? Well, I tried loads of other sports first and I was pretty rubbish at all of them. So um, I'd love to tell you I was brilliant and I had this whole choice of sports that were desperate to have me. Uh, swimming and basketball certainly weren't desperate to have me. Um, but I did my first wheelchair race when I was, I think, 12, 11 or yeah. 12. And I just, up until then, I just didn't think it was very interesting. You know, I used to watch athletics on TV, but you're thinking, oh, you just go around in circles and I didn't quite get it. But then I did it. And it was just amazing. I loved it. And that was what I wanted to do. And dad was always, you know, okay, yep, you can do sport. And sport's really important to be active. But you've got to get your exams. Mm. And, you know, as I grew up in the sport, I mean, I didn't win a race for about the first four years I competed because the best girl in Britain went to my school and was in my age group. So that's a bit annoying. Um, (sighs) But I think that made me more determined. Yes. And... It, it meant that I didn't have pressure of being seen as like the talented child. So I think that really helps when you're young, because I think if people expect too much of you when you're 12 and 13, it's sometimes really hard to live up to that. But my last year as a junior, I won the nationals. And then it was funny, all these people were like, oh, you're so talented. It's like, well, you never, you never saw that before. Where were you? Yeah. So, you know, yeah. it was it was good for me to be able to develop under the radar. But competing did take over your life and quickly... Mm you're being encouraged to pursue your sporting ambitions by your teachers and your parents. Mm. Did you feel that you were missing out on a normal childhood? No, 
I think I understood sort of the bigger picture really because it was like you know and I had friends in school and they understood that there was stuff you know I could see them at weekends and other points so it wasn't you know I wasn't completely necessarily isolated you must have been so pragmatic even from a early age pragmatic and also what you just said seeing the bigger picture not many kids do that I mean, I think I was about seven. My dad had this book and it had pictures of the Taj Mahal and the Sydney Opera House. And I can't remember the other ones. And he told me about how they were designed and built. And he gave me this big talk about the world's an amazing place and you need to travel. And, you know, to do that, you know, you need a really good job. And to have a really good job, you need a really good education. So it was kind of that was sort of the big thing. It's like, no, I want to go to Australia, I want to go to India, and I want to go to all these places. Your dad sounds fantastic. I mean, massively supportive, but also, you know, don't wait for other people. You know, you've got to create a bit of your own destiny, which yes. is, is important. At 17, you joined the Rookwood Paraplegic Club in Cardiff and started your competitive career in wheelchair racing. It's around this time that you met your husband. <laughs> yes. So, um, <laughs> I love the fact that you just started laughing right away. Yeah. Can you tell me the first time you set eyes on him? Yeah, so we were at Stoke Mandeville. We'd both gone to a training weekend. I had applied and was accepted to go to Loughborough. Mm. Um which, you know, that was a focus for me from being in my early teens because yeah. remember that's where Sebco went and it's like, right, yes. if it was good enough for Seb, it's good enough for me. Yeah. And um, so I met Ian and we were introduced and the first thing he said to me, we, we possibly have a different um, view of our first conversation if you yeah. asked him, but my recollection of it is first thing he said to me was, you're going to that PE college, aren't you? And I was like, no, it's a university. And he's like, no, it's just PE. That's what, what you're doing. I was like, well, politics, we are... And he was doing a PhD at Manchester. So I, I didn't really speak to him for a little bit after that. And that is, to me, a boy who fancies you. Yeah, you see, I didn't see that at the time. He's, I just thought... Yeah, it's, 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 he's got straight in with a kind of what mm. he thinks is a witty joke. And what he's done is absolutely the opposite. Yeah. How but, long did you not speak to him for? A uh, couple of years. Did you fancy him? Yeah, he's got amazing blue eyes. So, mm. yeah. And then we sort of tra started travelling a bit together and then he annoyed me slightly less. Uh, <laughs> and then he kind of asked me out. A slow burn. So we married. When we got married, we didn't live with each other for the first year we were married. Sometimes the best way. Because I was training somewhere else and I didn't really want to live where he was living. But, you know, it's fine. We're 23 years married and much longer together. Someone told me that you and your husband have matching tattoos <laughs> yeah we do it, it's quite dark okay I'm all ears so we were watching LA Confidential and I said to Ian if you die before me I'm not identifying your body I don't want to see your dead body and he's like, okay. And he said, we should get matching tattoos on our feet. You know, because on these films, you just see the feet sticking out with a morgue tag, don't you? Yes. And so I thought that was a really good idea. And uh, I was living in Birmingham at the time. We went to this tattoo place on Valentine's Day. And it was Saturday. And I explained to the guy what we wanted. Now, this is the guy who had most of his face tattooed and pierced. Yeah. And... I said to him, we want a morgue tag drawn on the bottom of our foot. And he said, that's the sickest thing I've been asked to do. I'm not doing it. 
went, seriously, you've got your face tattooed. And he was like, no, it's not appropriate. So what we did settle on, on the top of our feet, is we've got the word expired and then a date left blank. So dot, dot, dash, dot, dot, dash, dot. And so whoever, whoever goes first, the other one um, is going to fill it out with a Sharpie pen. Oh my god! It is. It seems right. really sensible till I I start telling it, and then you go, "Oh, that is quite dark, isn't it?" Well, I think you know, as an ex-goth who will always be a goth in her heart, I think it's the most romantic thing that I've ever heard. It's lovely. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's lovely. You went to the Seoul. Paralympics in 1988 mm. he came back with bronze in the 200 metres and four years later at the Barcelona Paralympics he came back with an incredible four golds training I think must have been brutal what was your diet like? Yeah, well, You're training twice a day six days a week mm. so the good thing I mean you do have to be pretty careful about what you eat but you also have to eat a reasonable amount Mm. so my race weight was 45 kilos so I had no body fat at all the chair is built around I mean I couldn't put on more than probably about 300 grams and I wouldn't fit in my chair oh right so you've got this sort of balance the good bit about it is that on a Sunday we used to do sort of a 25 to 30 mile training run yeah and you can eat a box of Jaffa cakes waiting for the pasta to boil which, okay. So 12, not any of these stupid packs of three. Um, I mean... But I can still eat 12 with a cup of tea. Athletics is starting to sound more appealing. You can eat a whole box of Jaffa cakes. Yeah. Could you eat a whole box in one go? Oh, yeah, yeah. Literally, as you're boiling the pasta, you could eat 12 Jaffa cakes. And, and it's been genuinely scientifically proved that the balance between the spongy bit and the jam and the chocolate is a really good percentage balance between carbs and sugar and protein for um for for training i like that i talked about your four gold medals but the proudest you looked was when i asked you if you could eat a whole box of jaffa cakes in one go oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the trouble is i still can so which is fun. when you're doing 150 miles a week training on the road and then six sessions in the gym it's kind of okay but when you're not doing that it's a bit more of a problem your career is packed full of incredible achievements i'm not talking about jaffa cakes here you carry on winning olympic medals this blew me away you won the london marathon six times yeah you clearly had this determination to be the best in the world yeah how did you feel the world around you perceives paralympic sports it changed quite a lot through my time competing. So I think I'm really lucky I grew up in Cardiff where sports people are kind of cherished mm. and there wasn't so much of a difference between, you know, disabled and non-disabled people mm. doing sport. Um, I think there were a few times early on where, you know, people could be a little bit patronising. Mm. Oh, isn't it lovely? Yeah, OK. Um, I did have one person say to me, isn't wheelchair racing really unfair because doesn't it depend on how fast the person is who pushes you? You go, no, now I push myself. So that that was really funny. But then sort of with each Games, I mean, I think things like the London Marathon, the Great North, you know, those events really pushed, you know, wheelchair racing. Mm, You know, I think by the time we got through to, you know, 2012, which was way after my career, but I worked on it, you know, the Paralympics were in a completely different place in terms of understanding about disability sports. So 
it was kind of fun to be involved at a stage where well actually it's still growing and developing and changing and the Olympic movement is as well but I think the times that were involved were really fun times to be involved. You've travelled the world for your career. I'd love to know what international cuisine that you've tried along the way. You know, I have had um, an Australian kangaroo and crocodile. Yeah, I do try to be adventurous and yes. having spent time in China we had all sorts of things I in, in China in Beijing I drew the line at the penis restaurant I'm gonna have to ask what is a penis restaurant uh, it's a restaurant that just sells different animals penises oh, why did I ask and um <laughs> I I I I presume it's a tourist. I don't know because I mean during the famine they would have eaten anything, wouldn't they? But I don't know whether it's a tourist thing. But the team I was working with there, they were like, "Let's go, let's go," and it's like. So they all no. went to the penis restaurant. Yeah. You stayed at home. Yeah. Did they come back going mm, delicious mm, uh, broiled penis? I I think it was one of those things that you tick off a list. But uh, I kind of went to the local market and just ate there and had duck and some other really lovely stuff. I've heard that you have taken part in eating contests. Oh yeah, a few. Um, I failed badly at every one. So um, the end of Barcelona, one of the guys on the wheelchair racing squad decided that medals didn't really matter and that the true (laughs) test of an athlete was um, how many magnums we could eat because in the the village, all the food's free and they just have these, you know, you know, like in the newsagents, we have the big chest freezers. Yes. They had loads of those full of magnum. (gasps) And I ate a couple and... One of the guys at 12 or something. Uh, and then we, we also have had uh, a McDonald's eating competition, which I failed. So free McDonald's on the Olympic. Yeah, in so the village. It feels a little bit like heaven in, yeah. in a way. At the house we're in, we had a couple of young athletes. And I mean, the, the village is amazing. And the food hall is just got so much food. It's got everything you could ever think of. And it's really easy to get distracted by the food. So we'd said to these as one of the lads on the team was about 16 he was a sprinter and it's like you 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 can't eat all that while you're competing so we had this deal that we we wouldn't eat anything during the games but the last night would have this competition um <laughs> oh and they do change the food slightly in terms of calorie intake and things oh i had a big mac and chips and i was done oh um yeah and then one of the lads he had six big macs and six fries i mean that's just like feed in a furnace isn't it uh, i mean he's field events you know big guy eat a lot but i mean that's still that is that is a lot of food you didn't choose your weapon properly like you shouldn't have gone in with a big mac should have gone in with nuggets (laughs) that's it you could that's it just yeah yeah you've been called britain's greatest ever paralympian i don't think i'm going to get to ask this question to anybody else in my lifetime What's it like being the greatest of all time? Could you stop laughing when I'm asking you a serious question about you being the greatest of all time, please? No, it's funny, isn't it? You you look shy all of a sudden. Yeah, um, because it's one of those things that you you don't have forever. Because there's going to be someone who's come along and and does better. So that's already happened. So you know, Sarah Story, Dame Sarah Story, has won more Paralympic medals than I have. So it it's kind of a bit. The medals are yours forever. Yeah. World records are yours if you're lucky enough to break them for a period of time before someone comes and breaks them. So it's like my agent probably wrote that anyway. No, it's, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's lovely 
But um, I never quite know how to handle that. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit You announced your retirement in 2007 yep. at the age of 37. You continued coaching young athletes and became active in a variety of roles, including becoming an independent peer in mm. the House of Lords. What do peers actually do? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, oh, where do I even begin with this? Uh, so... Um, as a crossbencher, I, I don't have a party whip. So you can kind of, actually any peer can do as much or as little as they want. Yeah. Um, but the one thing that's important, whatever got you there, you're expected to stay and remain an expert in that. Yeah. So for me, it's kind of sport and duty care and those things. So you're still expected to be connected into the real world. Parliament's a bubble and Westminster's a bubble and London's a bit of a bubble. And as long as I think as you don't think it's the real world it's okay yeah so you know we do legislation in the chamber you know you do select committees there's all sorts of different things but sometimes you can do and this is where it comes back to food so we have our own pastry chefs we are very very privileged it is you know lovely place to be and if you're having a difficult conversation with someone say a chief exec of a train company or something like that about what they're doing for disabled people you invite them in for afternoon tea and, and over these beautifully made eclairs or scones or... One thing I learned when I went to the Lords, you can order honey on toast or marmite toast or mm. anchovy toast for afternoon tea. A question that threw me is, do you want runny honey or sticky honey? I was like, panic. <laughs> um, growing up with the mum as a baker, I thought I knew a lot about cake. Mm-hmm. But obviously I didn't because you have your dry cakes and your wet cakes. So your wet yeah. cakes are, you know, your eclairs and things like that and your dry cakes are your scones and... Are you a dry cake uh, or a wet cake person? Uh, both. <laughs> One of each, yeah. But I learned that you shouldn't order too many at one go because that looks a bit greedy. So what you have to do is order one, eat it, and then get another one. Yeah. Is that another unsaid rule? Well, I I, I once ordered two plates of tomato sandwiches and, and got sort of looked at a little bit. It's like, really? You know, because that, that was a bit greedy. But Wait, What time does afternoon tea start at? Half three. and goes through to about six... Is there a cake stand? So we used to have a cake trolley, which it would be sort of wheeled around. Um, and then you would have your kind of your eclairs and then with the different toppings, like cream buns, like cinnamon swirls. Any chocolate? 
Yeah, so there's lots of little cake, which is kind of about a mouthful, yeah. maybe two, but lots of very delicate little things like little cherry ones and strawberry ones and chocolate and white chocolate. How and, do you get anything done? Like, do you not just at three o'clock do people not just start drifting off in the direction <laughs> of the cake, the class? Yeah, well, that's the reason I'm not 45 kilos anymore. But anyway. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and then there's all the, I mean, there's a huge choice of tea and things, um, and then sandwiches. So, you know, you get your tomato and your cucumber and your salmon and your egg sandwiches. It, hang on, and there's restaurants too. It feels like an amazing, like, all-inclusive resort. <laughs> I, would, I would do 14 days at absolutely no trouble. It's the bars and restaurants, yeah. The whole sort of estate has... 10,000-plus people potentially working on at any one time. So from the canteens are open at quarter past seven in the morning for your kind of full English breakfast and your porridge and your fruit and mm. all that stuff and then it switches to lunch about 11.30 Where's the nicest place to go? Oh Fancy Oh so Piers Dining is is really fancy Piers Dining um, So you can only go in there as a guest of a peer Right And that that is beautiful food but then we've got a whole range of canteens where today the choice was a fish finger sandwich or jerk pork and but they yeah. do lasagna, which I love, and cottage pie and shepherd's pie, curries, and love a canteen. Sponge and custard as well is a big thing. So there is always custard on the menu. It just feels like a magical place. It just, I just, I just, I think I would get much more enjoyment out of this than yeah, seven days in Mallorca or yeah. something. Just you, you do have to do a bit of work along the way as well, yeah. unfortunately. Which it's not. When you're still there at half past two in the morning, it, it's not always quite so much fun as, as others. I've already told you the plans in my head for my life as a baroness and how mm. I would take to it. Mm. But did you take to it straight away? There's bits which are quite scary, almost terrifying. So, you know, your first day when you go into the building and you get your staff pass... And I thought I was quite calm and collected, but then you see other new peers and you realise they look like a rabbit caught in the headlights. Yes. Mostly because you can't find your way around the building. Yeah. Um, and people are really lovely because we also, you get a photo of the new peers. So you get loads and loads of people coming up saying, hi, how are you? I'm such and such. You know, within 10 seconds, I've forgotten who they are. Or, yeah. you know, And you get people sort of directing you around. And, but actually, sport and politics are quite similar because they've both got rules. Athletics has got a ton of rules about what you can do on the track. And so is politics about what you can say in the chamber, how you can refer to people. The process is really clearly led. And now it takes a while to learn the rules because our rule book is called The Companion to the Standing Orders. And it doesn't always make sense when you first get there. Is it rules of where you sit, how you begin speaking when you stand up, how long you can speak for, who you can speak to? Yeah, exactly. This sounds stressful. Yeah. So if it's someone on your own benches... So the other thing is you can be... I mean, the language is not terribly accessible to anyone who doesn't understand it, but if I'm talking about someone on my benches, you're meant to call them my noble friend. And you can say my noble friend or my noble friend. Or if you don't call them your noble friend, if you just call them the lord or lady such and such, that's quite rude. So you can be subtly... You don't have to be rude. You don't have to be aggressive. There's lots of kind of ways that you can make your point without going, you, I don't... Well, you're not allowed to point or call someone you. Or by the first name. You've been outspoken about not just the Westminster bubble, but the London bubble too. 
family life for you is at home with your husband Ian and daughter Caris in the northeast in Eaglescliff, the real world, as you've called it. What's life like back home? Yeah, so life in Eaglescliff, it, it's very different. You know, London, yeah. you can go to the hairdressers at seven o'clock in the morning, yes. you know, and stuff is open, <laughs> like really long hours. And actually, in, until quite recently where I live, the shops didn't really open on a Sunday. What's an average day like at your house? I would love to tell you that we get up, you know, and we all have breakfast together and I, I yeah. make a cafetiere of coffee and we have our homemade croissants and, you know, we have a lovely political discussion over breakfast. Oh, it's mostly carnage, actually, our house. No, we live in a state of chaos. Uh, Karis doesn't let me do her washing. Uh, hasn't for about 11 or 12 years. Because okay. I dyed one of her white T-shirts another colour. Yeah. So she's very, very independent because I'm a bit useless. Um, so do you um, do you save all this by being an excellent cook? I start off with really good intentions and there are some things that I can cook very well. Lasagna and, you know, shepherd's pie, things that aren't very complicated. Yeah. One um, Christmas, we did have our roast potatoes four hours after Christmas lunch because <laughs> they just didn't cook and I forgot to put them in. And then just a lovely little snack <laughs> later on. Yeah. And then I, I tried to pretend that's what I was intended. <laughs> oh, this was around Christmas as well. So uh, we'd had turkey. Actually, Christmas lunch had been pretty good. And then Boxing Day, I decided to make like a big casserole with um, dumplings. Love dumplings. Yeah. Who doesn't love a dumpling? Yeah. But um, I'd made them with suet that was five years out of date. Oh, God. And hadn't particularly noticed when I was making them. Or when I was cooking them, that they smelled a bit funny. And then Ian had come into the kitchen and said, something smells really bad. So I was like, can you just stop being rude about my cooking? Just please, you know. And I sort of dished it out. And my dad was staying with us for Christmas and he started eating. And then Ian came over and went, no, this is really, I'm not, this is, it's rancid. And I tasted it and I spat it. And my dad's eating. And so he's like, dad, dad, stop eating, stop eating. So we had to throw it out and we went and got a curry and gave him lots of fizzy drinks to kind of kill the bugs in his stomach for my cooking. Anyway, he wasn't great the next day, but he was fine. Uh, he recovered. And then the serious bit, actually, about a year later he died. Okay. Of, of something completely unrelated. But then we found Karis going around telling people about my dumplings <laughs> and then saying... I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh. No, but it, no, it's really funny because she said, you know, mummy cooked these really bad dumplings and Pops died. So then... Oh. I have no idea how many people out there think I killed my father. Yeah, I, I think the evidence is quite... It was a year. quite condemning, it really. Was <laughs> yeah, and then Ian, Ian will join in saying, well, are you sure? You know, and it's like, please don't... Yeah, so um, I'm not I'm not the best cook, but my friends I are mean, really understanding. I've got some friends who, when they come to our house to stay, they bring their own food and they cook. Well, I mean, that's what happens when you poison your family. <laughs> what do you mean I don't have to cook I, I'm pretty certain I didn't kill my dad. <laughs> I hope. You're a northern girl like me, and I know you're sporty and you're a politician. But what I want to know is, when was the last time you went out on what could be referred to as the lash? Oh, long time ago. I get drunk very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. And... I get very embarrassing on about one gin and tonic. Oh, I've just remembered what it is. Go on. Oh. It's a safe space that you can, you can tell oh. us. Oh. Yeah, I know you want to. Okay, it was a school fundraiser for my daughter's school. 
and <laughs> I drank a few gin and tonics. I don't even know how many gin and tonics I drank. And it was really... I had a two-day hangover. The school fundraiser, apparently I was... I, I might have been a bit rude to somebody. Oh. But she'd been a bit rude to my friend. I think... And you know, I, that's that's the point sometimes of of going to something like that and just having a drink and then just sometimes telling people what they need to hear. You don't yeah. think that at three o'clock in the morning when you wake up, though. No, but I do remember my friend who, who could be quite robust with people and she never would have touched my chair or anything, but I do remember her grabbing my chair and pulling me away, which... But I think I think the other mum was probably, when you know you've crossed yeah. the line. But I think the other mum was drunk as well, so we she never mentioned it to me, and she was really nice to me afterwards. So she's either just forgiven me, or she does. I'm hoping she doesn't remember, but I can't remember what I said either. You were so. physically removed from the conversation yeah. by your own friend. Yeah, I like to think that you were still shouting as you were as you were being removed. <laughs> I hope so. I don't know. Oh, but that was the last. That was how many years ago was that? That was probably about. Oh, 14 years ago. You're, oh. yeah, and you're a reformed character now. Well, the two-day hangover wasn't good. And I remember Kara standing over me just saying, Mummy, I'm very disappointed in you. Oh. Which is, is bad. Baroness Tanny Gray-Thompson, my noble friend, thank you for comfort eating with me. Thank you. This episode of Comfort Eating was produced by Jack Paramount. The series producer is Leia Green and the executive producer is Cathy Drysdale. Music and sound design is by Axel Gacoutier and this episode was mixed by Solomon King. If you like Comfort Eating, please leave us a review. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And use the hashtag ComfortEatingPod to get in touch about the podcast or share your own comfort foods. This is The Guardian. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.